turn with me now to 1 Kings and chapter 9, page 311 in the Church Bible. 311, 1 Kings and chapter 9. We're going to look at the entire chapter, but I'm only going to read at this moment the first nine verses. And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon for the second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you and if you keep my statutes and my judgments then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your word to make us wise unto salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that that divine purpose may be realised in our lives more and more. Lord, give us the grace that we need to heed the word of God this night, to learn from what you spoke to Solomon in particular. Grant us the help of your Spirit, we pray. Be our teacher, be our guide in order that we might be brought safely to heaven. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We spend a lot of time in 1 Kings chapter 8, and with good reason. And you might think that after the dedication of the temple, and the great celebration that took place after that, with those thousands of animals that were sacrificed and the great feast that took place, that anything else in the life of Solomon would be something of an anticlimax. But that is not so. In fact, something very rare and unusual takes place in chapter 9. In verse 2 we are told, The Lord appeared to Solomon the second time 
as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. God spoke to Solomon. He received a message from God. That was not an everyday occurrence. We read in chapter 11 and verse 9 that in his lifetime Solomon received two divine revelations. God appeared to him twice and spoke directly to him in a dream. Therefore, chapter 9 is no anticlimax. It is a very important chapter, and especially the first nine verses that deal with this revelation. The rest of the chapter, when you read it through, seems rather mundane, even tedious. And at times you may shrug your shoulders and say, what is that all about? Some of them seemingly random details about international politics, Defence and town planning and building projects of Solomon. Offerings in the temple and a note at the end about overseas trade in the Red Sea and the trade for gold. And it doesn't appear that this chapter is all of one piece at all. The verb build occurs nine times in the chapter. And that's right through the whole section. Solomon seemingly has an obsession about building. Whether it's the house of the Lord, whether it's the king's house, whether it's what is called the Milo, the walls of the cities, storage cities. We read in verse 19, all the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots, cities for his cavalry, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. This man seemed to have building on the brain. But even that does not really provide a thread to this chapter. I would suggest that what we have here is a kind of mid-reign perspective on Solomon's reign as king. It is dominated by a message given to Solomon directly from God. Now some commentators, in the light of that and what is recorded later on in this chapter, and then what is recorded in chapter 11, go looking for evidences and precursors, as it were, of Solomon's folly. But I don't believe there's any substantial evidence in this chapter for that conclusion. I think those commentators are reading into the chapter what is not there. I want to break up what I want to say to you this evening into two main sections and then come to some points of application. I want us to look very simply at God's appearing and message, verses 1 to 9, and then secondly and briefly Solomon's activities and achievements, verses 10 to 28. First of all then, God's appearing and God's message. This revelation was very private and personal. In chapter 8 we read about the glory of the Lord filling the house of the Lord. It was public. The priests had to get out. They could no longer stand the presence of God and the glory of God. 
This, though, was different. This was God appearing to Solomon in a dream at night. We read of that in chapter 3 and verse 11. No reason to think that it is any different here in chapter 9 and verse 2. And it is God who directly speaks to Solomon. There is no higher authority. There is no one mediating. There's no prophet here. There's no priest here. It is God and Solomon. Solomon has finished building. We read in verse 1, the, uh, the temple and the king's house and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do. And I think that is a significant comment. It's rather an unusual statement. Solomon has, has fulfilled many of his desires. And then God speaks to him dramatically. In the middle of his reign, he is suddenly confronted again with God in person. It's as if he is saying, as if God is saying to Solomon, Solomon, you have been very active, you have been very busy, but do not lose sight of what is important. And for that reason, I am appearing to you a second time. I do not want you to lose perspective in the midst of your busyness and all that you have set your heart to do. Solomon, I have three things to say to you. In the first place, I come with a word of gracious affirmation. Verse 3. I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. A word of gracious affirmation. I have heard, Solomon, I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. He says and affirms, my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Here is God graciously affirming his sovereign, caring presence. Here is God saying, I recognize your prayers. I have heard your prayers. I will be your God. I will hear your pleas. So that when Israel sins against me and they repent and come before me, I will forgive them. The temple then will continue to be a means of access to God who hears the prayers and supplications of his people. The Lord singles out the most important thing. It's not the building themselves. It's not the house of the Lord, great as it is. It's not externals. It is Solomon's prayers, his heart, his sincere pleas for God's blessing upon himself and upon the nation. God, as it were, stamps his approval on those pleas and affirms he is heard. And he will not leave his people. He will not forsake them. He will hear them and answer them. So there is a gracious affirmation. Then in the second place, in verses 4 and 5, there is a word of strong confirmation. If you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments... 
then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. The Lord said, if you walk in my ways, then, he says, I will fulfill all my promises to David and to you. There shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. He confirms that. He underlines that. He wants Solomon to know that if you, Solomon, and your sons after you, if you continue to show the same attitude as your father David did, that is to walk in integrity of heart and in uprightness, then I will establish your throne forever. And he reiterates, he confirms the promise of Second Samuel chapter 7, where you have that covenant that God makes with David. And again, the Lord singles out the most important thing. It is Solomon's heart attitude. It's not the buildings. David, Solomon, he walked in integrity of heart and uprightness. Solomon, you must walk in the same path according to all that I have commanded you. And he's saying to Solomon, Solomon, don't depart from that. I'm affirming my faithfulness to David, your father, and to the promise that I gave to him. You then must be faithful. You must be loyal. And he's saying this to him directly, personally. Solomon is vital to be a man of genuineness, a man of integrity, a man of single eye. And then thirdly, there is the longest section in this revelation. It sends a shudder through us because it is a word of sober warning. If you or your sons turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. If you forsake me, or if your sons forsake me, if you do not keep my commandments, if you do not keep my statutes, if you go and serve other gods and worship them, then that will be the end. You will suffer a calamity, a disaster, a great loss. You see, the Lord is still concerned here with heart loyalty. This is what matters above all else in this revelation. Should you and your sons apostatize, should you no longer obey me, but should you forsake me for other gods that are no gods, then be warned, I will bring destruction upon you. I will uproot you and turn you out of this land and I will bring this house to nothing. I'll return it to dust and ashes. I'll cast it out of my sight. And yet a few moments before, God had said, 
Solomon, I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. Now this is not just one sin that is a failing. It's not even a sin like that of adultery like David. David repented of that sin. This is not just any one sin of disobedience. This is idolatry. This is a turning away from God. This is a forsaking of God. This is a living and a pattern of life and conduct as if God had not redeemed them, as if God no longer existed, as if God was not real. This is the jettison. This is the turning away from and the casting aside of the ten commandments, the ten words of the covenant. This is the very opposite to true repentance. This is a turning away from God to sin. Rather than a turning from sin to God. This is a denial of all their whole existence. In fact, in the original in verse 6, there's a Hebrew expression which underlines how significant this is. Literally, it would be translated, if turning, you shall turn from following me. The verb is in two forms there, repeated, in order to intensify that verb, to turn away from, to underline the deliberateness and the wickedness of forsaking God. This is not just a passive falling away. This is a deliberate forsaking of the Lord. It's a throwing off of His sovereign Lordship. It's a denial of His redeeming grace and power. It's a denial that they are the servants of God. It's a rejecting of the words of the covenant. It's a very serious and sober warning that God gives to Solomon. Here then is a mid-reign message directly from God. It is probable that this message was given after Solomon had been king 20, maybe 24, 25 years. He reigned another 16. So you see where we are in his reign. His great accomplishments stand before him. And here is God addressing him, giving him a gracious affirmation, strong confirmation, and a sober warning. Here is Solomon in his prime, fulfilled all the great desires of his heart, his great building program in Jerusalem and in all the lands of his dominion. What does the Lord focus on? Solomon and his heart attitude towards God. Solomon, I've seen it in your prayers and that pleases me and I delight to affirm to you that I have heard you. But Solomon, you cannot sit back now. You cannot sit back as it were on your laurels. You must maintain integrity of heart and uprightness. You recall the pride of Nebuchadnezzar? 
before he was made into like a beast. He went onto the walls of his palace one day and surveyed Babylon and said, this is the great Babylon that I have built. And he was struck down in his pride and made like a beast of the field. Is that something that God in his kindness is seeking to prevent in the life of Solomon? Solomon, this is the way. Walk in it. This is God in his kindness. Solomon, do not turn away your heart to idols after all that I have done for you and all that I have done for Israel. Now, before we make a closer application of that, I want to consider and weave in the human activities and achievements of Solomon. Solomon's activities and achievements, verses 10 to 28. As we said already, a lot of this concerns his extensive building program, either directly or indirectly. Seemingly mundane things, matter-of-fact things, but as one commentator, and I believe rightly says, these are the sorts of things that kings and nations do. This is kingly activity. He is a leader. He is in seeking to establish the kingdom of Israel. And there are four things with regard to his activities and achievements. First of all, in the realm of international politics, verses 10 to 14. You remember that Hiram, who is the king of Tyre, had helped Solomon with the building materials for the temple. Cedar, cypress and gold for the temple and for the king's house. Hiram had sent, according to verse 14, 120 talents of gold. That's about four tons. That's a pretty substantial amount of gold. Solomon was supposed to pay for that gold with food supplies, according to chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. And it would appear that Solomon was in debt and didn't have enough food to pay for all the gold that he had used and the cedar and the cypress. And so, what does he do? Well, according to uh, verse uh, 12, Solomon gives him a number of border cities, towns, 20 in number. And Hiram is not impressed. Kaboom, he says, good for nothing, useless, worthless. You're going to pay me this way? Oh, you see, there's a bit of international tension. International politics. Now I have a question here. I do think there is one point of criticism that we can level at Solomon in this chapter and it is this. Should Solomon have given this pagan king what was essentially the Lord's inheritance and part of the gift of land to a foreign king? I'll leave it at that. But anyway, he's involved in international politics and relationships with Hiram. Then, secondly, there is extensive defence and town planning schemes, verses 15 to 19, that involve forced labour of the remaining Canaanites. Verse 20, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel. And verse 15, let me just give you a sample, it mentions two towns, Hazor 
and Megiddo. Now those two towns were fortresses at strategic points on the main trade route from Egypt in the south to Mesopotamia, Babylon, as it became in the north. Hazor controlled a key northern strategic point, Megiddo, a key pass in the hills. And Solomon was strengthening the hand of the nation. And also filling the coffers of the nation, because these were trading routes, and there would be customs and taxes to pay. And so this is what he did. Much of the town planning is a defence mechanism, defence work. He's concerned with national security. He's defending the nation. He's protecting the caravan routes, the trade and income of the nation. That's the sort of thing nations do. That's the sort of thing kings do, isn't it? They're concerned with international politics. They're concerned with national security and defence and trade. Then thirdly, verse 25, because Solomon's provision for three annual feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, regularly celebrated, burnt offerings, peace offerings. We just have a comment there. He maintained that observance in obedience to the word of God. And then fourthly and finally in verses 26 to 28, you have again a note about overseas trade. Solomon builds ships and he's trading from the, the, the Red Sea, Ezion Geber, and the main cargo, gold. Gold from Ophir. And no one knows where Ophir is. So don't ask me because I don't know. No one seems to know where Ophir is. But notice the amount. 420 talents of gold. That's nearly four times what Hiram had given him. This was a tremendous source of wealth. And whatever Hiram thought of those towns that Solomon had given to him, he was not slow to be involved in this lucrative trade. He provided the manpower. Solomon provided the ships and Hiram provided the manpower. So they both cashed in on the profits to be made from obtaining gold. Now I would suggest to you that those four things, international relationships and politics, national security, protecting the country, the religion, the national religion, and then the overseas training, these are the sorts of things that leaders of nations are involved in. Relationships with other nations, trade, commerce, all these building projects, they were all related to these things. Well, why are they there? Why are they mentioned? Most of the rest of the chapter is taken up with these things. There's more on these things than there is on the divine revelation. Well, you say, well, they're mundane things. They're ordinary things. They're everyday things. They're secular things even, perhaps. And therefore not important. I wouldn't draw that conclusion, would you? If they're not important because they're secular, what does that make of most of your daily employments? Are they of no importance? Are they secular, of no interest to God? No, this is life. This is human activity. 
This is normal day-to-day work. This is activity that provides a livelihood for a lot of people. You have a calling, you have a vocation to fulfil in this world. But I think there is a point still to be made in the light of what God has said to Solomon. And in the light, too, of the book of Ecclesiastes, which I'll mention in a moment. All this human activity and all the achievements of Solomon count for nothing unless there is that fear of God and that serving of God with a loyal heart. In the book of Ecclesiastes... Solomon concludes that everything is vanity. Everything is vanity without that reverence and fear and knowledge of God. Solomon has received a mid-reign reminder, a message from God, with a prolonged warning from the Lord, a warning given to him in kindness, to keep Solomon's perspective right, to keep him on the right path, to keep him on the right track. And what I want to do is to take what we have seen, what we have heard from this chapter, and with some specific applications and exhortations, drive home some important lessons about loyalty to God. You see, thirdly, our highest calling as God's people is ongoing loyalty to the Lord who has redeemed us. Ongoing loyalty to the Lord who has redeemed us. This is God's word. This revelation, this message of the Lord to Solomon is not a dead letter from a bygone age. This is the Holy Spirit The author of scripture, speaking to you, speaking to me, Christ is speaking to us through this passage of scripture. The scriptures are given to train us in righteousness, shaking us out of complacency, urging us onward, urging us forward, urging us to serve the Lord loyally in righteousness in obedience, with integrity of heart. We've seen in this chapter that that is what matters as far as God is concerned more than anything else. It is underlined in the gracious affirmation. It is underlined in the strong confirmation. And it is certainly clear in that sober warning. Well, how can we fulfil our calling? How can we remain loyal to the Lord? How can we persevere and be sure that we will not forsake the Lord? If you are honest, one of the greatest fears that you probably have as a Christian is that you will turn away from serving God. Well, how can we be loyal to Christ until the end of our days? Well, first of all, let me say this. You cannot in and of yourself. You cannot as a natural man or woman without the Spirit of God obey 
the commandments of God. This chapter and the book of Kings and the whole Old Testament cries out for one who is truly obedient to God. David walked in integrity of heart. And you say, well, no he didn't. He committed sin. He he committed adultery. He committed murder. But the fact is, you see, David repented of his sin. And he returned to the Lord. But David failed. And the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures is crying out for the coming of one who fulfills the law of God for us. The way of Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. We cannot make ourselves right in the eyes of God. We cannot even begin to obey the commandments of God left to ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right in the eyes of God. We can't make ourselves righteous. We cannot put purity into our hearts. This is something that God must do by the power of His Spirit. And that He must establish that right relationship. It is only as we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and transformed inwardly by the power of the Spirit of God that we begin to obey the commandments of God. And then, never perfectly, but sincerely. That's the first word of counsel. Let's get it on the right foundation. But then, secondly, take on board the affirmations, the confirmations, and the warnings that God gives in His Word. All of them. Affirmations, confirmations, and the warnings. All of those are three different ways in which the Holy Spirit addresses us. And we need all of them. Some Christians don't take very much notice of the warnings. And none of us will take to them naturally. But when God gives warnings, they are in kindness. When God, as it were, sets a red flashing light in front of you and says, you see that red light? What do we do? So I didn't see that. I don't want to hear that. But we do so at our peril. And I want to say this. Don't think to yourself... Well, the older I get as a Christian, the less I need to pay heed to the warnings. Solomon was in the middle of his life. And you know what happened to Solomon in the latter days. He is 20 plus years into his reign. Don't sit back in mid-life and become casual or give your heart over to covetousness which is idolatry don't imbibe the patterns and the habits of the world and settle down into some kind of easy armchair religion that does not pay heed and sufficient heed 
to the affirmations, confirmations and the warnings of God's word. Ah, you say, isn't this Old Testament religion? No, it's not. We've just been reading through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a letter of perseverance and it is urging the Christians on to loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to depart, not to turn away. It gives warnings repeatedly. Even though the writer says, we're persuaded of better things concerning you. We still give you the warnings. So take on board then all that God has to say to us. Including the warnings. But then thirdly, cultivate a hatred for the sin of idolatry. I use that word deliberately. Cultivate a hatred. A hatred of sin. It is wickedness. When you study idolatry in the scriptures and you begin to understand what it is, if you are a true Christian, you cannot but not hate it because it is so perverse and so wicked. It is a hatred that only can be given to you by the Spirit of God. So much of holiness in the Christian life consists in the things that you hate and the things that you love. You hate sin and you love righteousness. We are to hate all sin. That is one way in which we will persevere in the way of righteousness and truth and integrity of heart. But we are to hate the sin of idolatry in particular. This is no ordinary sin. We need to ask God to give us a holy hatred of it. This is a forsaking of God. This is a wicked thing to do. This is the most wicked thing that any man or woman could ever do. After professing to know God, to turn against Him and to deny Him and to turn away from His love and to abandon Him and His word. You remember in the book of Hebrews it talks about an evil heart of unbelief that departs from the living God. That's what Solomon is being warned against. And you love to have an evil heart of unbelief that departs from the living God. You stand up in horror. You shrink back in horror. And so you should. Because that is a hatred of sin and of the sin of idolatry and unbelief. But there may be someone here tonight of a tender conscience and say, well, it may not be the sin of idolatry. But any sin any sin. And I'm worried. I'm scared. Let me say to you, this sin is the sin of apostasy. This is the most extreme form of sin. This is an abandoning of the truth. This is the believing and choosing of a lie, serving and worshipping the creature rather than the Creator. When you fall into sin, Satan may well come to you and say, huh, you know where that'll end? You've apostatized. No. Not every sin is apostasy. This is apostasy. Idolatry and the abandoning of God and the serving of gods that are no gods. 
That is apostasy. Now idolatry takes different forms. It doesn't mean to say you have to bow down to wood and stone and metal idols. In chapter 2 of Colossians, we will come to it in due course as Pastor Jeremy takes us through that book. The writer there talks about, Paul talks about the philosophy of empty deceit according to the traditions of men, not according to Christ. Anything that takes us away from that simplicity of trust and confidence in Jesus Christ is the beginnings of and will lead to apostasy. Anything that turns us away from Christ. There are those today who deny justification by faith. Those who deny that we are accounted righteous and accepted in God's eyes because of the blood and the righteousness and the obedience of Jesus Christ. There are those who deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There are those who deny that Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only mediator. They say, no, there are other ways. And so we could go on and on. What happens? There is a forsaking, there is a departing, there is a turning away from Christ, a turning away from the Gospel. As we hear those things, crying that God would impart to us a holy hatred of those things and a love then for the truth and a love for Christ. But let us also be careful of the spirit of covetousness. We've already said that covetousness is idolatry. It is easy as you become accustomed to living in this world, living on a reasonable salary, it is possible to become covetous and materialistic and become more concerned with money and possessions and things. And the heart be stolen away from single-eyed loyalty to Christ. Let us beware of these things. But then, if we're to cultivate hatred for the sin of idolatry, then we are to cultivate an ongoing loyalty to the Lord. How can we do that? Let me suggest one or two things. Imbibe a spirit of thankfulness to God every day of your life for all his faithfulness and all his promises, all his grace, all his willingness to hear our prayers and our cries. Thankfulness to God promotes love to and loyalty for the Lord. A dependence upon an awareness that unless the Lord supplies your needs and unless the Lord strengthens you, you will sink. Thankfulness promotes integrity of heart and righteousness. It binds our hearts in love to the Lord as we return praise and thanks to him for the things that we have received from him, we recognize him and realize we cannot live apart from him. That all that we have and all that we enjoy are God's good gifts to us. Put God's faithfulness constantly before you. There is nothing here in 1 Kings, despite those warnings, nothing here in 1 Kings 9 that suggests that God will fail you. The failing is Solomon's and his sons, if anybody's. It is not God. Paul can write to the Philippians, we're confident of this one thing, that he who has begun a good work in you 
will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Not only thankfulness, but also faith in God. A faith in God. Let's go back to Hebrews 11. The providence of God, that was our reading in the New Testament this evening. If you are serious about maintaining your faith and hope, then look at those saints who persevered. How did they persevere? How did they go on? They continued believing in God's word. Abraham died in faith, not having received the promises. He did not abandon. He had his moments of weakness. We know that. David had his failings. But fundamentally these were men and women of faith. They trusted in God. And if you have a thankful heart and a trusting heart set upon God, that is one of the main ways in which you remain loyal to the Lord. Because God is constantly before your eyes. God is constantly in your prayers. You cannot live without God. You cannot live without thanking Him on the one hand for all that He has given you, and you cannot live without faith on the other hand, trusting in Him, believing His Word, living by that Word in this world. That is the way to maintain loyalty of heart to God. But the last thing I will say, and this will tie in with our celebration of the Lord's Supper. If you would remain loyal to the Lord, then remember above all else who it is who has redeemed you to himself and how he has redeemed you to himself. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that you are a redeemed people. Solomon and Israel belonged to the Lord. They had been redeemed out of the land of Egypt. They were the purchased possession of God. He had taken them out of the house of bondage. He brought them into the land of rest. That is picture language for us of our redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has purchased you with his own blood. Keep him before your very eyes. Keep him before your very affections and be not ashamed to embrace him and love him and confess your entire dependence upon him. Remember that you have been purchased with that blood. Remember that it is the Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has given you to his Son, Jesus Christ. The Father has loved you. Jesus Christ has loved you. Jesus Christ has redeemed you from the guilt and the power of sin. He gave his lifeblood. Paul could say unashamedly, he loved me. He gave himself for me. Keep him before your eyes. And this, the Lord's Supper, is one means that God has given us, Christ has given us, in order that we might not forget him, but be reminded constantly that we belong unto Christ. Remember those words too in Romans chapter 8. The Father did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How then shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You catch the logic of that verse? 
God has not withheld his own son, his own beloved son, loved from before the foundation of this world, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. He did not withhold him. Well then, with him will he not give us all things? All that Christ has purchased for us? Remember, he goes on. Well, who's going to throw a charge then against, bring a charge against God's elect? Who is it who condemns the elect of God? It is God who justifies us. Who is going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Paul throws down the challenge. You see, this is the way to maintain loyalty to God, loyalty to Christ. Put him, our crucified Saviour, the gift of the Father. Put him before our eyes. Feed upon him by faith. Come to this table tonight to eat the bread and to drink the wine. Not only in remembrance of him, certainly in remembrance of him, but come to feed upon him and all the spiritual benefits that Christ has purchased for us. They are ours. They are yours. They are mine. And no one can take them from you. That's the way to maintain a love for and a loyalty to God and to Christ. May we walk in integrity of heart and uprightness according to all that God has commanded us. Amen.